The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 24. Um, uh, Matthew chapter 24, we have been preaching through the book of Matthew. And we are getting into the last days of Jesus and his ministry uh, before the cross. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read the first few verses of this because we're going to preach through this. And so we'll read through all of Matthew 24 as we move through it. But uh, I'm going to read the first few verses for us. And then I'm going to pray because we need God's help to understand his word. And then we will start looking at this together. So this is just after Jesus has pronounced his seven woes uh, upon the, the false religious leaders of the time. In verse, chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will all these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Let's pray. Father, um, we're looking at a very challenging chapter for us this morning. um, But it's your good word for us. And so I pray that you would help us to understand what you're teaching us and what it means to be a disciple in Jesus and to be motivated, looking forward to his return. Um, Help us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 24 is this kind of famous chapter in the book of Matthew because it's all about the end times, which I'm sure some of us enjoy talking about and some of us don't enjoy talking about at all. Um, I don't know what church tradition you grew up in, but Matthew 24 points towards the end, so to speak. This is not only coming to the end of the book of Matthew, but Matthew is telling us, giving us some pointers towards the end. And it's, uh, it's one of those things where Everybody's always trying to figure out when exactly is it going to happen. <laughs> um, I looked it up on Wikipedia this week. There are around 180, uh, so far, false predictions of the end of the earth with specific dates that people have had all through church history. Some of them tend to focus on like major, major years, like around the 500s, right? There's a lot of false ones uh, that came up. Obviously, they're false. I'm not trying to be mean, but this just didn't happen, right? <laughs> Around 1,000, there was a year, year 1,000 AD, there was a lot that happened. And then more recently, there's been a few recently. I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago, um, Harold Camping, he had a, a big radio ministry, and he had predicted the end of the world on May 21st, 2011, uh, to then kind of finally be culminated on October 21st. Um, I think we can all say that didn't happen. But it was sad, because there was a lot of people who believed him and took in what he was teaching, and they like got rid of their retirement plans, sold off everything, and we're just kind of like bunkering down and waiting for the end to come. Um, and it's not just religious people who do that either. I don't know if you guys are aware of the doomsday clock uh, that started at the end of World War II, but it was a clock that as, um, physicists and people who are uh, ast- uh, atomic scientists set up to basically, now that we have nuclear power, um, when are we going to blow ourselves up? <laughs> and if you're wondering right now, we have two minutes to midnight, so to speak. They, they, they time it by saying, we're really close to the end of nuclear destruction of the human race. 
Uh, I don't know about that, but those are the types of things that we are just always trying to figure out because why are we trying to figure out the end? Because life is hard and it seems like things just keep getting worse, right? It just seems like things constantly just keep getting worse. Uh, things are not going well. Uh, life is hard and I'm kind of ready. It would, it would give me a little bit of some comfort to know when's the last chapter of this whole thing, right? And just a little bit of some comfort to know when the end is coming. Um, I remember my, uh, when I was in college, one of my professors commented that every third generation of Christians feels like they're the last generation. Um, so what we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew 24, where Jesus takes on these questions head on. He, ta- he takes on when's the end and what does it look like to, for the end to be coming. And the, the way in which Jesus addresses this is not to feed us with uh, a sense of dread, but actually to help us um, find some comfort in him and not in the specifics of what the end is going to be like. Jesus here at the, in Matthew 24, remember, he is walking towards the cross. And the ultimate victory is not uh, Republicans versus Democrats or the resolution of all of our problems, uh, politically, economically. Jesus, on this day, in this chapter, is walking towards the cross where he will settle the greatest debt that we have, which is the the debt that we owe God for all the sins we've committed. And he is walking towards the, towards the cross, and the disciples here in Matthew 24 are being a bit of like uh, tourists about the temple, right? Like, look at the big stones, look how great this is. And Jesus, as he's walking towards the cross, is saying, this is all going to go away. I am going to be your only comfort and motivation in life. I'm going to be the one thing that comes and comforts you and motivates you I, and so in this chapter, he is preparing us for his leaving. So I think if we're going to like kind of sum up what's this whole chapter about, what's the main point of Matthew 24, the king's coming motivates our life in him, right? He is, he is leaving the temple, he's leaving Jerusalem, and he's going to destroy it because he's going to supersede it. He's going to be more important than the temple, and the temple's going to go away. And Jesus is going to return, and that return says something about our life in him now. And so what Matthew 24 is about is basically answering these two questions the disciples posed to him there in verse 3. If you have your Bible in front of you, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So basically, Matthew 24 is, is split in half in answering these two questions. First question, when are these things going to be? When, so when Jesus says, uh, now there will be no, one stone upon another, verse 2, where he says, look, all the stones of this temple are going away. When are those things going to happen? That's the first part of the chapter. When, it, when are you going to return? That's the second part of the chapter. And in the midst of all that, Jesus is aiming at motivating us to continue in our lives with him, to focus on him, because he is returning. So that's how we're going to split up this chapter. We're just going to cut it right in half, and we're going to work through the first part of the chapter, because the motivation Jesus provides for us, I think, in this first half of the chapter, is he motivates us for gospel endurance first thing that he's addressing is gospel endurance. As he, as he addresses this question, when's the temple going to be destroyed? He is motivating us with gospel endurance. And so what I want to do is um, I recognize that as we work through this, that there, are, there have been uh, maybe different things that you've heard and different teachings you've heard on this. And I do not want to discount that at all. What I want us to do is try to take what's the simplest, most obvious interpretation of this passage for the people that Matthew wrote for, right? He wrote for a particular audience, for the original people um, who got this back in, you know, 70 AD, right before the temple is destroyed. How is he equipping them to be disciples? And so 
I don't want to discount everything else that we've been taught, but I want to just look at this simply, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. And the way Jesus begins to motivate us for gospel endurance is he gives us basically a timeline of what's going to happen with the temple. Basically, through, chapter, through, through verse 4 to 35, there are all of these markers of time. This is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And the reason I take all that to be about the destruction of the temple is when you get to verse 36, which is all about the future, there's no timeline provided. So there's a, there's a real clear progression of time in how Jesus is addressing the destruction of the temple in these next few verses that we're going to kind of lay out as we look at this together. That's a better font than the last time. It's not the Helvetica new that I picked, but it's decent. Verse 4 through 8. All right, what do we see? The beginning of the end of Jerusalem. Jesus saying, okay, when's the temple going to be destroyed? Verses 4 to 8. Let's read that. And when Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For the many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are about the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus is saying, it's going to get hard. This is going to happen, right? There's going to be false, false prophets who come and say, I'm the king. I'm, I'm the one uh, who's come to save you. Uh, and then this is all just kind of like the beginning of it, but it's not quite yet. And you know what this sounds like? It sounds like a lot like the book of Acts, doesn't it? Right? There's persecutions he's going to describe. There's things that are crazy happening, like earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. That sounds like the life of the church in the book of Acts that, that follows right after the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, look, things are going to start getting hard, and here's what it's going to look like. Let's pick up in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Right? That sounds like the book of Acts. And you will be hated by nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. That, again... This sounds like, the, the, in some ways, like the normal life of the church, specifically in the book of Acts, where people are just kind of like going at each other, right? That's why we have all these New Testament letters for the divisions that happen in the church. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And, become, and because lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what I read here is that basically Jesus saying, the life of the church between now and the destruction of the temple is going to be really hard. There's going to be a lot of crazy stuff that happens, a lot of people falling away, a lot of people that you thought were disciples who are going to leave the church, people that, that you thought were trusted leaders that turn out to be false prophets. But the kingdom of God, the gospel, is going to advance and continue to see more people come to me. And then the end of the temple will come. The reason I take that verse 14 is because it's actually a regular phrase through the New Testament that talks about the gospel advancing to the ends of the whole earth. So First Corinthians, or Colossians 1, Paul says, the gospel um, has indeed come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, when Paul wrote that at, what, 60 A.D., 70 AD, um, it had not quite gotten to South America yet, had it? The gospel had not been proclaimed, uh, even in the beloved shire of New Hampshire, had it? It had not quite gotten here yet. And yet what he said was true, because in the known world of the Roman Empire, basically the borders of the Roman Empire was basically, you could say, well, the whole world knows about this if everybody in that Roman Empire knew about it. So it was a true statement for the time, but if we were trying to be like scientifically precise, 
it was limited to that scope, right? It wasn't the entire globe, including, including Antarctica and the little penguins down there, right? The view was for everybody known at the time, they'd all heard about the gospel. They all heard about Jesus. And that when that happens, end is coming. End is right on the doorsteps of the temple. And now we're going to talk about the destruction of the temple, and we're going to get a little bit of some picture into why that was important. So we're going to pick up in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountaintops, to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and, not, and never will be. Right? What Jesus is describing here, let's pick up, I'll, I'll finish this out. And never will be. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of those elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For the false Christ and false prophets will rise and, and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, now pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the return, the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. See, this is actually describing, this is describing the destruction of Jerusalem. This is the, um, this is when, historically speaking, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. So I put together this little timeline of what happens here. Can we throw, go to the next slide here? This is the destruction of the Jerusalem. Jerusalem revolt in 66 AD. This is Jesus predicting that ahead of time. He's like, we're going to kick the man out. I'm tired of being pushed down with the Romans on top of us. The Romans, not in my town. <laughs> they're like, no, nah, we're the boss here. Like, hey, we hate each other too. The Romans, they're like, so they have, Romans have a civil war of 68 to 69 AD. And then the Jewish people are like, hey, while you guys are doing the civil war thing, uh, let's do that too. And so the, the, Jerus- the, the Jews at the time, they had started this revolt because they did not want the Romans on top of them anymore. But that exposed these political factions that we've been discussing all through the book of Matthew, and they start going after each other, kind of devouring each other alive. And amidst all of that, the Romans settle their problems, right? All right, we got this figured out. And then Titus, who is the, the Roman guy over Jerusalem, he comes and squashes the Romans, or the, the, the Jerusalem revolts and the Jerusalem uprising. And the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. So that's all historical stuff that actually happened. And what Jesus is saying is, those times are going to be so bad that you don't have time to go grab your bag and run to the fields. You don't have time to get out of t- like to go kind of like collect your things. And if it happens on a day of rest, it's even worse because you aren't even prepared. Like you, you probably don't even have your work clothes on. You know, Jesus is describing this entire horrific situation and what ultimately ended up happening. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the Jerusalem Temple, all that's left of it from from 70 A.D. to now, is a foundation wall. Like the entire temple has been destroyed. The Wailing Wall, it's called, it's a basically, it's a, it's a temple wall that supports the foundations of what was the original temple. All those other bricks and everything else were destroyed. Imagine what that did for their, psych, their, their psyche. Like 
This is basically like if somebody said, we're going to come in and we're going to destroy everything in Washington, D.C. And it's going to all be gone. So all of like our American sense of what, what's our, our cultural identity, right? You know, all of like all of those pictures of monuments and our dollar bills and stuff like that. All that stuff annihilated. Jesus is saying that's going to happen because the temple is not the location of God's presence with his people. The temple is not what's important anymore. The temple is what's in Jesus. Jesus himself is the one that becomes to reign, which is what we go on to see, right? Verse 29, immediately, right? This is saying all that destruction is going to happen. And then immediately, verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven in, poor, in power and great might. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, this reads like this is describing the last days. I think this is actually about the destruction of the temple because it's this prophetic language in the Old Testament. If you ever read the Old Testament, you read through the book of Jeremiah, you read through the book of Isaiah, and there's like these incredible kind of like comic book level descriptions of spiritual events of what happened. And what Jesus is saying is when the temple is destroyed, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, will be seen as the king that advances the mission and presence of God through the earth. He is the one that stands above it all. He is the one who is the king. He is the one that will be seen as the presence and purpose and plan of God, right? Not the temple, not the physical ethnic dynamics of Jerusalem and the Jews at the time. Now it is Jesus and his kingly advance. What does it say? Verse 31, to gather in his elect from the four winds, right? Now begins the triumph of Jesus around the globe to bring in his people, who belong to him. Now begins the time where Jesus says, I am the key event. So then verse 32, 35, and then we'll pause and kind of make a few comments about this. Verse 32, from, that, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, right? So he's now referring to all the things he's just described. You know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation, and I think that's, he's talking about the, the actual people, will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So why is Jesus preparing them? Why is Jesus kind of laying out these dynamics and saying, here's what this is going to look like. It's going to be horrible and it's going to be bad. Why is he laying this out? Even in the midst of hard times, our faith is shaken. And Jesus is saying, stay focused on me. Stay focused on the main point. Stay focused on who I am. Stay focused on me amidst all these hard things that you're going to be facing, which is why this book translates to us, right? This is why this chapter means something to us because life in the church is hard, right? Life as a church and life as Christians is just constantly disappointing in many ways, right? If it's not your pastor disappointing you, it's just the circumstances of life that are disappointing you. Life is just incredibly hard. And certainly there is like a cataclysmic difficulty to what Jesus is describing here for the end of Jerusalem. But it translates and it means something to us because life is always hard. And when things get hard, our faith is shaken and we begin to go uh, in directions that, just, that deny Jesus. 
right? The disciples' questions are basically, how are we going to move forward as your people? And the question that Jesus asks, do you trust me because I'm in control? Jesus got this. And he motivates us for gospel endurance. So I don't know if you picked up on this, but these are some of these, these the most invaluable verses here. Verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He is calling for us to, he said that verse four, right? See that no one leads you astray. The one who endures to the end will be saved. That verse 35, how he ends this whole section. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying, endure because I've got you. <laughs> this endurance that he's laying out for us then, I want to just kind of go back, just kind of cover a few things from this section because he motivates for his gospel endurance and he gives us some very tangible reasons why. Endurance and church confusion, right? Did you pick up there in verses 9 to 14, right? Right, people will be delivered up. They will be hard. Nations will hate nations. Many will fall away. Many will cool off in their faith. Many will go after false prophets, right? Jesus is kind of laying out, right? Have you ever had friends in the church that you thought, man, we're going to do life in Jesus forever, and then they just go off the rails, Things just go crazy. Like, why did they make, you, you hear later on, what, they did what? Jesus is saying, that is going to happen. He's not saying, you know, delight in it or be suspicious of each other. But he is saying, this is a reality. He has been, he's been saying this all along. Some are going to be true disciples and endure. And others are going to fall away. But where does Jesus land us? Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Our hope and faith in church and life together as a church should never be in each other. It should always rest in Jesus. He is the one that's saying, this is going to happen, but endure because I endure. Jesus is saying, endure in me. Keep going and, and endure in the gospel. Endure in me because I'm true, even though all the people that you're sitting next to are fickle people, right? <laughs> I change my opinion from breakfast to lunch sometimes. I don't think you want to like rest your life and hope on me. Right? Have you ever had this experience where you realize like this person is my friend, but they're not my ultimate hope? We should have that perspective of the people around us. Not because we don't love each other, but because our hope in Jesus is not grounded on whether so-and-so is still in the church, whether so-and-so is walking with Jesus. Right? The second thing he goes after is endurance in leadership confusion. Versus you have all these false prophets that he talks about, right? Like false prophets are going to come. False prophets are going to lead people astray. And we kind of read that and we're kind of like, why would you go after a false prophet? Like what? Why would you go after them? Well, it's funny. I was, I was kind of doing a little bit of some reading on this. And uh, a psychologist um, by the name of John Patrick Peter... Uh, Peterson um, has done work on understanding why people go after cult leaders. Like, you know, you, you're all these crazy cult leaders that run cults, and you're like, dude, that guy's clearly insane. Like, <laughs> why are you going after him? It's because cult leaders generally appeal to our desire for comfort. Cult leaders generally appeal, uh, you're very, you're, there's a lot of poverty in your life. If you believe in me, we will create a new world together. That's comforting. 
If you're desiring power, well, come up next to me. We'll take over this place, man. You know, like he, they, cult leaders appeal to the desire for comfort, which is what ultimately false teachers do, right? False teachers who preach prosperity gospel stuff, right? They just name it and claim it. It's like, oh, that, that's a much easier life than trust in me even if you're dirt poor and you die at the sword. That's, that's a different perspective on life. The reason Jesus is going after this stuff is because when we get hard, each of us go after our own false prophets, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whether it's Netflixing your evening away because you just can't handle the stress of life, or you just escape and implode because you can't deal with the frustrations of other people. I don't know what your false prophets are. Maybe you know it's porn, or you're going in directions with substances that, you, that are not good. Right? These are all a desire for comfort. And Jesus is saying... Pay attention to me. Did you pick up on this? A part of this is that in verse 29 and 31, there's this whole prophetic thing of like, and immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Man, above all of this craziness going on, where is Jesus? Did you pick up the, the direction of this passage? Where is he? He's above everything that's happening. Right? He is the one that we should be looking to for direction and comfort and guidance. He is the one that will truly comfort us. He will never disappoint you. Cult leaders and false teachers and even your lowly pastor, (laughs) I can never provide soul-satisfying comfort for you, but Jesus stands above it all and provides grace and peace and direction for you in a way that I or a false teacher never could. Or all of the little things that we go to in life. Jesus is saying, life is going to be hard, and he's trying to motivate us that he is above it, and he is the true prophet that you can trust. And the final circumstance, and then we'll turn to the last half of the passage. final circumstance that Jesus gives us motivation for endurances is in circumstantial confusion, right? Motivation for gospel endurance, endurance and circumstantial confusion. When your circumstances in life just don't make sense. Did you pick up on that as we're reading through this? This sounds like a crazy place to live. (laughs) And if if you're reading through this, you're like, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and shattering of everything and people falling away. I just get, my mind just explodes. It's so confusing and hard. And Jesus is saying amidst all that, right? Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Where does he direct us amidst all of this craziness that he's describing? Right? His direction is to say, look to me. Look to my words. Right? All of this stuff is going to be totally confusing. I don't know where your life is right now, and if all the decisions of your life all piled into a single place are confusing. I don't know if your week this last week has been crazy and just, you know, upheaval and I don't understand why my family is doing this, and I don't understand why these people are saying this about me. I don't understand why people are making these decisions. It's confusing. Jesus redirecting us, almost like a child, grabbing our face in his hands and saying, look to me. All this stuff, right? You give it 70 years and everybody's dead. Look to me. Heaven and earth will pass away. 
but my words will not pass away. I will sustain you. I will comfort you. I will be the one that upholds you. My grace, not your works, is your confidence before God. Jesus is saying to you, I am the only sure place that you can find stability in the days ahead. I am the only place that you will find sanity and peace, not in getting all your circumstances lined up, not getting a part of the perfect book collection for your perfect leader, not getting the perfect friends. Jesus, Jesus alone will be our comfort. We read Psalm 1 just here during early in the worship service. Going to God's word is where we talk directly to God face to face. Do you want to hear from God today? When you open your Bible and read a page, imagine this is basically Jesus' face behind that page speaking those words of comfort and grace, correction, encouragement to help you endure in this life with faith in him. He is speaking directly to you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So let's turn now to the last half of this chapter, where Jesus, the king, he is not only talking about the days ahead of the disciples that are going to be hard, but he is motivating us alongside them for our life in him. Motivation, he says, for gospel fruitfulness. Let's read verses 36 to 44. Now concerning that day and hour, right? Remember, this is pointing back to his question before. Remember, the disciples said, when are you going to destroy the temple? And then when are you coming back? So now he's picking up second question. Now concerning those days, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah enters the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he will have stayed away and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You see, Jesus is, uh, this is why I'm saying the first half of the chapter is all about the destruction of the temple, and the second half is about the return of Christ, because now Jesus says, you don't know the time and place at what's going to happen, but here's, some, here's the principle of what that will be like. It's going to happen when you don't expect it, and be ready. That's basically it right? He says, it's going to happen at any moment. You could be at work typing that email to the person that your coworker that you don't like, you know, or to the, or you could be having dinner with your family and in between one steak, sorry, vegans, and the next steak, <laughs> he returns. You could be driving to work. You could be driving to church. You'd be walking your dog. You don't know. So how do you, how do you live in that sort of tension of that life? Stay awake and be ready. Be fruitful. Be living your life in Jesus to say, so that the life that you're living is welcoming and happy to see Jesus, right? If you're a Christian, you should be happy to see him when he returns. 
And just one thing I want to kind of comment on a little bit. Sometimes these verses, verses uh, 40 to 42, are used to describe what's called the rapture for people. Some people would say, look, here we see or, um, before Jesus returns, people were taken away, and then there's a time of extra hard stuff. I don't think that's what's going on in these, chapter, these verses, primarily for these reasons, right? Jesus is basically saying, um, you don't know when it's going to happen, and so any sort of insertion of time into this is not helpful. Uh, secondly, um, the, uh, where they're taken is not specified, right? It's not saying, like, he's saying somebody, somebody's going to be taken and one's left. To, traditionally, in the last 100 years for America, we've assumed that people who are taken are taken to a good place. Second reason I would say, there, actually, there's no indication that you should assume that because verse 17 to 18, right, where G, Jesus says, uh, in the days of Noah, um, right, or I'm sorry, we was talking about the Romans sacking Jerusalem, right, those people, the people who were taken, are taken into judgment and destroyed. Uh, so if, if that's kind of the background when he's saying they're going to be taken, my assumption is the people who are taken are taken for final judgment. And then just as a, a general point, God doesn't take his people away from the earth, right? He, we have the story of Noah, what happens? The people who are taken away, the people that God judges. Jesus just said earlier in the book of Matthew, I'm going to give you the earth. So why would he take his people away? You can believe in the rapture, that's fine. <laughs> we could talk about that another time. But I'm just saying, I think the main point of what Jesus is saying is, look, stay fruitful and faithful, right? <laughs> Pick up on verse 40, 45. When then is the faithful, who then is the faithful and wise servant, right? See, Jesus keeps hammering this. Stay focused. Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give, their, give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, right? Doing the work that he's been given to do. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed in the beginning and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with drunkards and the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him, in, put him with the hypocrites and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, Jesus is amidst all of this discussion. When is the end going to come? What does it look like? He says, keep your head down and stay focused, right? He's not saying he's indifferent to the struggles, but he's saying don't get caught up on timetables and charts and all of this other stuff, or don't grow lazy thinking he's a good king and I can beg his forgiveness when he comes for not living a life that honors him. His return, blessed is a servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes, right? This is the entire aim of the book of Matthew. You know what, if you want like a summary of the book of Matthew, the king comes to make new disciples. That's what the book of Matthew is basically about the coming of Jesus, the king. And it's all about hammering. Are you his disciple? Are you walking with him? Do you know him and walk with him? Right, the other thing that I want to I return us back to the beginning of the book, just to kind of close out here by, by picking up. Do you pick up at verse 46? Blessed is that servant. What does that sound like? How does Jesus start his public ministry? Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who persecute are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, stay focused on being my disciple. Do not get caught up on the winds of anxiety and change in the world around you. Stay focused on being a thriving disciple in me, which means you're producing these types of fruit. We, we pulled this earlier when we were preaching through this chapter, fruitfulness and humility, right? <laughs> That's the kind of fruit that Jesus wants us to be known for. People who are humble and broken and say, I don't have it all together. Please forgive me for sinning against you. Please help me grow because I'm a total jerk face apart from Jesus. <laughs> People who are defined and fruitful in humility, confessing sins to one another and finding grace together. People who are fruitful in justice. We are not going to spend a whole time talking about the whole social justice movement right now because Jesus primarily says, you should care about the justice of God in this world. You should care that God is, is for the weak and oppressed and the vulnerable and the victim. And you should care about it because Jesus cares about you. Jesus cares about it because he cares about God's designs being loved. People who are fruitful in justice. People who are fruitful in peace. Peacemakers. People who say, there is, a, there is a problem going on in this relationship. There's a problem going on in my family. There's a problem going on in these dynamics. Let me lean into those things to find peace because what does God do with a broken, nasty world? <laughs> A broken world that despises and rejects him. People like us, he leans in and makes peace with us and kisses us and welcomes us into his family so that we can flourish in his presence. And then Jesus says, look, be fruitful in multiplying. Remember Jesus said earlier in Matthew 25 or 24, this gospel is going to advance. We want to be people who are about the advance of the gospel. Right. Let's keep our budget lean and mean so that we can spend all of our money as much as we possibly can on church planting and raising up new church planters. Let's pray, guys, as a part of God's desire for fruitfulness in our city, let's start praying for a church plant on the west side of Manchester. Let's start praying, then the next step down, for a church plant on the south side of Manchester. And then all those other suburbs that we'd love to you know, diss on, New Boston, <laughs> Londonderry. Let's pray for church plants in the surrounding areas because Jesus wants us to be focused on doing his work. That's where the comfort is because he loves laborers. He loves people who are slinging it all out for him. But did you pick up on this? He isn't just kind of a, a slave master. Verse 26, blessed, 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Verse 47, Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Jesus is heart, aiming at heart motivation because he wants you to be rewarded at his return. He wants you to not only see the, his face and enjoy his presence with us, but he wants to give you more responsibility in the advance and flourishing of God's kingdom in the new earth, which I have no idea what that looks like. What does it look like? to be a project manager over things that won't break and fall apart. 
I don't know, but it sounds great to me. You know, what is it like to, to bake a cake that, will, that won't crash in and, <laughs> and implode under the, the icing? I don't know, but that sounds like a great cake that I want you to bake for me, please. What is it like to see the advance and smile of God? Well, you want to have it now because you want to have it then. Jesus is aiming at our hearts because Jesus wants us to be so filled with joy now and being fruitful for his kingdom that when we see him, our hearts explode with joy because it only gets better. We are looking forward to the return of the king. That's what Jesus is after here in Matthew 24. Yep, life in the church, as a Christian, it's hard. It's going to be hard. What's, what's endure together by keeping our eyes on him? Let's be fruitful together by keeping our eyes on him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to look forward to the return of the king? Would you motivate us in our lives for his return? Would you motivate us to be fruitful for him in our lives together? Would you, be, would you give us your spirit now, Father, that we would endure? Father, I pray for those in our family that are struck by circumstances and confusing things going on right now. I pray that you would help us to endure beside them, to strengthen them beside you. And then I pray you would help us to be fruitful, to be peacemakers and humble and justice lovers and multiplying churches. Father, give us this grace because we can't do this and it's your great desire because our King is coming. I pray that you would help us in our lives to be motivated for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.